One thing is certain, the world is forever moving forward, and with it people, whoever and wherever they are. For Audi, the future represents a vision to innovate. Driven by the pursuit of progress, Audi regards the future as a guiding philosophy, replete with opportunities and bursting with potential. Audi sees the future as more than a measurement of time, it's an attitude. Join us for The Art of Moving Forward, a series that delves deep into the notion of progress and introduces the people shaping the world that's yet to come. We begin our journey into the future of design at Audi's headquarters in Ingolstadt, Germany. It's here that Audi's head of design, Mark Lichter, explores the extraordinary possibilities of his field. We caught up with Mark to learn more about his rigorous design philosophies and how they intersect with the visionary outlook that characterizes Audi's progressive approach to the future. Mark began by giving us a brief insight into his lifelong passion for car design. I was always dreaming to become a designer. For me, a dream came true when I finished my studies and worked as a professional designer. I did it already as a young boy. I was catching always in, at school sailing yachts and cars. So a dream came true, first of all. It's obvious that someone with a lifelong passion for automotive design fits perfectly at Audi. But for Mark, the synergy goes far deeper. Audi isn't just a place to design cars, but to share deeply held philosophies about his craft. The reason why I want to become always an Audi designer is that Audi is a very progressive brand. And to design the future at Audi, I think you have to know the past very well. I think it's very important to understand Audi and to understand why I love this brand. You know, Audi, if you look back the last 25 years, always did always some very bold decisions. And I would call them very progressive decisions. For example, almost 30 years ago, Mr. Piech decided that Quattro is uh, four-wheel drive is better than rear-wheel drive. This was revolution at this time. Very bold decision, and Audi did a big step. Then a few years later, they decided that Audi space frame, you know, all the competitors built their cars in steel, and Audi decided we do it in aluminum. So, and they're step by step in each generation, they are really bold decision, and that's the reason why Audi became that fast a competitor, which is on eye level to the other competitors which grow in the last 100 years or more than 100 years. Audi did this development in only 30 years. I love this brand because I have the feeling that many or most of the people here at Audi are driven by this progress, you know, that everybody wants to challenge themselves to come up with radical new ideas. And I love this spirit. And that's the reason why I'm here. My design philosophy, I love progressive design, which is on the other hand very timeless, you know, and there is one or two examples, industrial design examples, which are perfect to explain my philosophy. I love the Barcelona chair, which you know, the Mies van der Rohe. Imagine, you know, he, he designed this, this chair yeah, 90 years ago, more than 90 years, imagine, more than 90 years, it looks still super progressive, is super functional. And it's timeless. It's a timeless piece. So this is my favorite industrial product. That's my philosophy. Mark's passion for design has found its perfect home at Audi. But where do we see this beautiful confluence of design philosophies in practice? We call this aesthetic intelligence. That's our, it's the name of our design philosophy. And that means the perfect symbiosis between innovative technology and progressive design. And this describes this perfectly for the past and for the future. Always is always driven up by technology. 
it's fascinating to learn more about the deeply considered philosophies of design that underpin Mark's work at Audi. But what does the work look like? Head of design is a broad remit. What does it encompass? And where do Mark and his colleagues pursue their future shaping work? I'm responsible for everything where are the Audi badges on. So that means responsible for the exterior design, for the interior design, for color and trim, for all the interfaces, for race cars as well, you know. They are shaped by the wind tunnel, but they are still designed. We do all the race cars. We do all the graphics for the race cars. We have 450 colleagues here, here in Ingolstadt. And then there are a few ones in, in Malibu where we pick up all the trends from, especially California, you know, because especially California has a different lifestyle. A car is always a result of a team. And I want to visualize this. Okay, we have 450 colleagues here in the building. It's not easy to put them in one room. That's why I came up with the idea that on five levels, we have 35,000 square meters of office place and everything is open. There's no wall in between. If I'm here on the fifth level, I'm in the fifth level, I go to the center of the building and I can look down in each level. So it's very good. I can see everybody from this point. And this was my idea to, that we are visibly become one team. Yeah, and then there is the heart of this, of this building. So we are working here completely digital but we still need models. We use the material clay, and the heart of the car is a studio where right now there are more than 40 projects or 40 cars. The milling machines are running. I love to enter this studio, and after our interview, when I leave Audi, I always go to the studio. I enjoy walking through this studio. All the new cars are there. Ah, I, I, love, I love to be here. I love to be part of this team. It's amazing. It's a very special situation. Mark Lichter, Audi's head of design there. Next time on The Art of Moving Forward, we'll hear more from Mark as we learn about Audi's paradigm-shifting new vehicle. But today, let's delve further into the philosophy of design as we hear from an individual working tirelessly at the sweet spot where progress and sustainability meet. That's still to come on The Art of Moving Forward. Industrial designer Alexander Taylor is known for his forward-thinking approach and is fettered for his revolutionary mastery of materials. Some of his most meaningful recent work includes developing trainers made from ocean plastics in collaboration with Adidas and Parley for the Oceans. His latest venture is the launch of a responsible clothing brand. His years of experience offer him an unprecedented insight into the ways forward-facing design stands to shape the future. We spoke to him from his studio next to Farringdon Station in London, itself a marvel as not just one of the world's oldest underground stations, but soon to be one of the busiest. With trains rattling in the background, we asked Alexander what the notion of progress means to him. You have to try and offer viable, intelligent solutions, which are, is essentially an improvement on what already exists. That really is fundamentally kind of like top line of every every brief in a way it's like you know there's no i don't subscribe to styling as such so therefore if you're not kind of you know looking at from a styling perspective you know from a design perspective it's to really approach the situation and say well how can i improve this design then there can be multiple kind of routes to finding solutions and they might be something which you know small incremental design updates let's say or kind of proposals which help from a manufacturing perspective or from a usability of functionality perspective also from an aesthetic perspective there can be incremental kind of smaller updates and changes and then there can also be the kind of the macro changes which somehow you know you start to 
assess, let's say, the whole build process or the whole process of the product from start to finish. And that might start to take you into systems, into supply chains, into materials, into production line. You might start talking about geographical kind of like scenarios and solutions and shifting the whole production setup, essentially. And that can either be to kind of reassess something which is existing, or it can be also to propose something entirely new to a market. The way that we work as a studio is that we kind of have managed to essentially over the years generate a method which allows us to approach every project, every conversation in the same way. You know, it's about deconstructing an object or a product or a design brief and then rebuilding it and starting to look at every single opportunity that exists within the scope of that brief. And if you can change anything with the smallest detail, then you're making an improvement and therefore it's, it's kind of worth looking at. And then if you can change small details on something where you make massive volume, you know, you start to have a bigger impact and, and a much greater opportunity to improve and to change. And that's the thing. It's kind of, it's to think what you can do kind of like on a, on a local scale as well, but then you've got to sort of think big. Fundamentally, from a design perspective and from a designer's mind, I'm always looking for alternate production techniques. I'm always looking for alternate solutions. And I'm always looking to challenge the existing norm, I guess, and traditional supply chain and makeup of making a product. And that ultimately... I think we're able to find not only solutions, but also it helps define the character of an object as well. And then from that, you know, you start to generate new solutions and interesting new product. Design's broad, you know, and there's many different ways in which design can have an impact. From my personal perspective is to, you know, I have a designer and other designers, industrial designers essentially have a responsibility. We are the creators and we're, we're kind of the makers of objects that exist, physical objects that exist in our world. And we therefore have a responsibility of if we're creating something that exists, then we have to be responsible for that. So not only from, like I say, there's good design from a functionality perspective and really kind of a rational application of functionality. And then there's good design, like I say, from a responsible perspective, from a material assignment, from a before afterlife consideration as to, you know, it passes through the life of the user and, and then what happens next and the footprint that's left by those products. That's where we have such a huge opportunity as designers to, you know, everything is essentially can be redesigned and upgraded and updated to some capacity. There's just some things that work very well and don't necessarily need as much attention as others. But we have that opportunity as designers. And I think it's very much from an industrial perspective, our role and responsibility to make that happen and to shout loud enough to make it happen. How do Alexander and his team bring their years of experience to bear on their ambitions? How do they drive their discipline into a sustainable future? There's no project that we start from zero. Everything is a kind of a continuation or running parallel to there's knowledge coming from somewhere. And it's often it's quite, a, I guess, a, a broad scope. And so we're able to tap into that knowledge and apply it to a particular scenario. We, we kind of have this fast, slow working approach where we have the research that we're doing for active projects. We have our own body of research that we're doing and explorations, especially now whilst it's gone quieter on the active front, let's say. It's our responsibility to be proactive on searching out solutions. And, and we sponsor, you know, I sponsor that as a studio to kind of have a, an incubation of ideas. And then it helps us keep up the forefront and keep those questions coming because when it comes to materials, it's all about it's an understanding and not necessarily, again, we have an understanding, but it's about the network. It's about kind of collaboration. It's about working with industrial experts and industry experts and then working together as, um, as a collective to find the right solutions rather than working in isolation saying, well, I love this material. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to design something with this material. It's about you need, first of all, the, 
the design brief and then you need to work on and develop and, and, and research to find the right material. And then you need the experts to help you apply and put the two together. And then you need obviously the, the kind of the, the commercial platform or the, or the platform from where it's come to enable it to live. We work in a way where we have kind of, we refer to it as more practical innovations. And then we have the kind of much bigger picture, blue sky innovations or whatever you want to call them, but the longer projects. And they're often where you, the ones that kind of start to integrate material development stories because materials have to be developed, like I say, in accordance with the functionality. And so there's often somehow a decoupling where materials are designed and objects are designed and then they try to retrofit them together. But we like to work in a way where the two are somehow developed in, and there's some alignment on that. And then we have real practical design solutions which also carry material stories, but it's more about just looking at what's on the table. Like there's materials that already exist and we need to reassign them, but that might also mean adjustments in the supply chain. It might mean talking to the, the guys on the production line, you know, the blue collar workers and saying, you know, what, what change would you bring? And then inevitably for every kind of action, there's a reaction, there's something that happens that you sort of need to understand from a design perspective, how you can apply and put that together. We've been so fortunate to be involved in material stories and had the time to develop those material stories, which is also important. But then they also come with that. They, they, you know, there needs huge investment and there needs kind of a network behind it to make it happen. As we heard a moment ago, Alexander's extensive work includes a collaboration with the Parley for the Oceans initiative. Founded by Cyril Gutch, Parley creates a dynamic space in which brands, designers and thought leaders can realise projects that raise awareness for the world's seas. It's an inspiring enterprise. Did working with it change how Alexander sees the world? That moment, I can say, I can really pinpoint it to that moment. I mean, we it didn't necessarily change the way that we design because we kind of worked from the first products I was designing and making, I've worked in a way which is kind of about material efficiency and process and functionality, of course. But me, from the first call that we had, seven or eight days before the kind of the first shoes that we made for the, the UN presentation uh, or the presentation in the United Nations between, which was to announce the Adidas Parley collaboration, from that first call, opened my eyes to the problem, essentially, I mean, I knew about it and I was aware of it. We're conscious of it, of course. And we always had this kind of, this conscious sustainable design responsibility, all part of the rhetoric. But to have it presented to you by Cyril, you know, someone who is, you know, the, the most passionate, energetic, never say die optimist out there that I can kind of, I could, I could imagine meeting. You know, to have him sort of create this movement, essentially, which has become now, but is this, this as well this platform that we could, you know, work with was incredible. And so it changed my perspective and it massively from that day forward. And not only on the work, obviously, from a design perspective and, and doubled the amount of effort that we would put into kind of ensuring that we would we would shout as loud as we could for change. But it also, yeah, from a personal perspective, from a human perspective, it changed my habits from becoming a vegetarian, not quite vegan, but vegetarian and being responsible for a game with the studio and, and responsibility for, for plastic consumption or plastic use and everything. You know, it's all, it's all, it becomes ingrained in your kind of way of being in life as a kind of, you know, if we're going to be part of that world, then we have to, you know, practice what we preach. And that's become fundamental to who we are and, and, and the makeup, like I say, of the individuals that are also working for the studio. That collective and that collective attitude is something that's very powerful and, and certainly addictive. 
How did that inform Alexander's philosophy towards sustainable design? We can only kind of address the design briefs that we have, and we can only work on things, like I say, in the background, which offer viable solutions, and all of them are considered solutions. But whilst we're kind of still creating on such a mass volume as we are, then it sort of smacks a little bit the idea of sustainability. And so there's this constant kind of tug of war or arm wrestle with the word, essentially. You know, you like I say, you manage to solve one problem and another one comes along. And, and, and so there's always that. But of course, we have to all strive for that. And I think the good design design method is naturally kind of something which which leads to a sustainable solution. I mean, we don't had never designed a pair of shoes before the first project we did with Adidas or I did with Adidas back, we started in 2007. And, and that was born from asking industrial designers to propose alternate solutions to making performance footwear at the time. And myself, and there was a little group of us that, that had that first trip around the factory one day over in Scheinfeld in Germany. And you saw the production line there, you got introduced to how the and production lines and capacity and volumes that would obviously going into producing footwear in Asia and and other facilities, and you realize how many different parts and pieces are put into creating one shoe. They're all cut, molded, injection molded, cut and paste and glued back together. I mean, that would be sort of 15, 20 parts for one shoe at that time. And my approach was to propose knitting and essentially flat knitting, or 3D knitting as it was as it was referred to then. And that was to try and say, well, can we make it out of one process? and one hit on one machine, essentially, and not look at designing one shoe, but look at the way in which we design shoes altogether. That was my ambition at the time. And it was less focused on, like I say, on that, that image of one shoe. It was much more about kind of seeing the opportunity to really have an impact on, a, on the way that shoes are made moving forward. And now they make 22 million pairs plus a year of knitted shoes, you know, and that's just one brand, essentially, and, and new factories and everything else that goes with it. But with that, of course, come other problems you've got to solve but it's the start of something new and it, what it did was open the, the conversation to realizing that hey look we can design the yarns we can have a an intervention on color production we can have an intervention on different aspects of supply chain like i say maybe it's made local instead of you know again it can be something where local investment can be kind of from a brand perspective can be a discussion as well so it brought all of this kind of just a new way of talking about design as a more holistic process rather than marketing design developer and designer all kind of having the, the hand from one to another it was like let's all sit around you know and sort of figure out where this can take us well finally then with an eye to the future where does this design visionary and his studio look next i wanted to create and it's something that happened a little bit it happened naturally it happened just as a consequence of a conversation that we had with a factory in China called KTC about another project. They're a kind of an outdoor performance apparel factory, very well thought of and, and very good facility. And, and we got talking one day, Gerhard, who runs the factory, kind of, in, and then invited to have a chat about potential collaboration and where that might take us. And that was two and a half years ago. And, and so we tagged it onto a trip over there and um, and went to see them and and then, you know, we had the conversation about, we'd done a lot of footwear, but was also interested in, in apparel, obviously, and into accessories, into bags. And so therefore, we wanted to open up the conversation about working on some different typology coming out of the factory. So that's where the bags came from. And then it was like, well, what can we do with that? And how should we approach that? Again, back to that sustainable question or sustainability and from a design perspective. We don't want to just create new materials again to plug into this story. 
So therefore, we, we obviously looked at the inventory of dead stock or essentially a leftover material that they have, which is the same. It wasn't anything new, but it just gave us a kind of a spark for creating something new and set some limits and some boundaries. He walked us around sort of the three warehouses full of dead stock, you know, millions of dollars worth of three-layer, beautiful technical materials and lining materials and what have you. And we used that and defined it as our marker. And with that, created the structure by which we could create objects and each one would be essentially limited edition by the finite nature of the material. And, and that was it. But with that, it brought its own kind of challenges. First of all, with working with that inventory, working with technical materials, trying to apply knowledge from technical tricks that we learned in footwear onto, onto apparel, onto bags. And then obviously communication between the UK and a factory in, in China, just the practicalities of all of that. But it gave me the opportunity to kind of house that. And then we, we called that ATID. And, and then we, we you know, we, we build a website to show it essentially a shop and we can sort of somehow process the work through there. And it, it's somehow, it's a way that we can illustrate the handwriting of the studio design, reach that kind of conclusion from a design language perspective. And I like to think of it much more as a platform. I've sort of mentioned that a few times to people. It's more of a platform because that's really the only the first chapter is to kind of work with the factory and work on that kind of material. And let's open up some other opportunities, working with guys that are developing new, interesting biotech materials. Let's work with some guys that are making, you know, we're working with some guys that are making base layer and kind of performance base layer and socks and things like that and applying different I guess, narratives, you know, it's a different story each time, but it, we're going to then, we now have a platform by which we can, we can see how that works and, and it just creates more opportunity moving forward. So it's just about constant generation and, and keeping alive in the, in the mind, really. That's what we're all about. Alexander Taylor there. That's all we've got time for on this edition of The Art of Moving Forward, here on Monocle 24. Today, we've heard from two titans of design as they've explained their personal philosophies and how they engage with some of the world's core challenges productively to drive innovation in materials, techniques and vision. We'll be back next time to learn more about advancing design. We'll explore design, innovation, mobility and performance as we turn to Audi's remarkable new vehicle, the e-tron GT. Find out more at monocle.com or catch up anytime on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for being with us. Further information on official fuel consumption figures and the official specific CO2 emissions of new passenger cars can be found in the guide Information on the Fuel Consumption, CO2 Emissions and Electricity Consumption of New Cars, which is available free of charge at all sales dealerships and from DAT Deutsche Automobile, Treuhand GmbH, Helmut Hertzstrasse 1, 73760, Offildernsch Farnhaus in Germany, www.dat.de.